Hope for the best, prepare for the worst. Anybody ever heard that saying? Hope for the best, prepare for the worst. Yeah, it's a great old cliche. Um, it's uh, very useful. Love it. And there's really only two types of people this doesn't work for. There's only two kinds of people in the world who don't like it or can't even tolerate the the whole, you know, hope for the best, prepare for the worst. One is extreme optimist. Anybody know someone like this? Um, you ever try to convince an extreme optimist to prepare for the worst? Um, like, hey, do you want to take a little extra money just in case? Like, no, I looked. It's all fine. I got plenty. You're like, yeah, but take a little extra. No, I, I already looked at how much everything costs. You're like, yeah, well, something might go wrong. No, nothing's going to go wrong. Like, everything's going to be perfect. I got a couple of these in my house. Like, and, and, uh, and, um, yeah, you cannot convince them that something may go wrong. Um, the good thing is, no matter what goes wrong, they spin it like it was a positive. So it, nothing ever does go wrong for them. I got one son that no matter, no matter how bad things go, he's like, boy, I'm glad that happened. You know, and just, like, you cannot, you, you cannot, uh, set him behind, back. But, um, the second type, um, that can't stand the cliche, hope for the best, prepare for the worst. And I have, um, some of this in my blood and in my background, so I'm not making fun of this, but, um, the second kind of person that doesn't like pray for the best, hope for the worst, are word of faith folks. You ever tried to, you ever tried to say that to, uh, a word of faith folks? You're like, um, you know, you might want to prepare, take a, oh, don't speak that into existence. Anybody ever run into somebody like that? Do not speak that into existence. You're like, no, oh, I'm not trying to say it's going to happen. I'm just saying. And they're like, don't start rebuking you and declaring in the name of Jesus they're going to have an awesome vacation or whatever. Um, I got a little bit of that. So, uh, um, so of course, this can't be taken too far. The whole prepare for the worst. My father-in-law, when uh, when his mother-in-law passed away, um, you know they were struggling with her estate and stuff, and he got so like prepared for his estate. Every time he went to his house for like dinner or Thanksgiving or whatever, um, he made us do a dry run through of what we were going to do when he died. Like we had to like okay, we, we walk to the safe and we open it. And all your paperwork is in there. Like, you know, you can over prepare. You can over prepare. Um, but. Uh, but for the most part, having a contingency plan is a good thing, right? And I say there's only two types of people. There's kind of a third. Um, that would be people with ADD, except people with ADD, you know, don't just have a backup plan. They don't have a plan. So that's totally different kind of deal. Um, and of those three types of people, I'm basically all three. I'm basically kind of all three. So I'm not great at uh, making a plan or a backup plan. Um, and I love the idea. I love the concept. Um, but I'm just not good at it. Because um, once, once I start thinking about everything that could go wrong um, and, and all the terrible things that could happen, I have a tendency to like get paralyzed in that. So, um, And this drives my oldest son crazy uh, at work, mostly. Um, he's a planner. He likes to think things out, plan every step. Um, and, uh, and this is only a bummer because we work together. And so I feel terrible for him. Um, because for years... Uh, we've been on the front end of like a big project, a big, uh, a big job at work. And, uh, and he'll say, so what's the plan? And I'll say, what do you mean? We're going to move that thing. And he's like, yeah, I, I get that. I get we're going to move that thing. What's the plan? I was like, I don't understand. We're going to move that thing. That's the plan. And he's like, well, but I mean, what if we can't move it? What if we get into it and we can't move it? And I'm like, well, boy, we have to move it. And he's like, oh, okay, I get it. But what? And then by, by then I'm bored and I just start, you know, diving in. And he's like, and he used to do this thing in his snotty teenage voice. Oh, here we go. We're diving in without a plan again. Like, and, uh, and so now, um, now he actually um, runs the family business. I kind of work for him now. And, uh, and I think, um, I think he thought that would change once he took over. And now we can plan everything out. Uh, but earlier this year, we had this huge kind of all hands on deck demo job, this monster demo job in this basement that had basically been like a tile uh, display uh, area. I think the guy that lived in the house 
uh, sold tile and stuff. And so there was a couple walls that were these gigantic slabs of marble glued to the wall. And, uh, and they had to weigh five, six, seven hundred pounds a piece. Like they were big monster slabs of, of granite. So, um, Josiah was clearing the cabinets out of this little kitchenette in the basement so that we'd have room to come in with a hoist or a cart of some kind to help us get these things off the wall. And so while he's over there with, with one of our other workers kind of pointing out, I think if we do this, we do this. I went and got a big crowbar and popped it off the wall and I'm kind of holding it balanced. Uh, on me, and I'm like, guys, I need help carrying this. And so they all come over, and he's like, for God's sake, still no plan. Like, and he just d- jumped right in, and we started. We got it down. We got it all down. It was just fine. But yeah, still drives him nuts. In fact, this week, my uh, third son, who's in the electricians' union, texted about this really fancy bend of conduit he had to do, and really complex. And and we were kind of talking. I, he's loving the the rigidity. He's got OCD, not ADD. So that's you know. You can imagine him growing up in my house. Um, and I was kind of apologizing for that. I was like, dude, I'm so sorry you grew up in my chaos. He's like, oh, I wouldn't change it. He's like, I was looking at this thing going, I'm not good enough to do that. But my dad picked up that house with carjacks one time, so I guess I'll figure it out. <laughs> He's like, so I kind of have that wired into my brain that now well, sometimes you just got to dive in and see what happens. But uh, anyway, but his idea of a backup plan, a contingency plan, um, in case things don't work out, um, was on my mind all week uh, at, because I kind of felt like this morning's portion of the Apostles' Creed can sometimes feel that way. We're, we're spending this year, we kind of uh, felt like God gave us a, a word for this year, core strength. Um, and so we're spending this year diving into some of the fundamentals, some of the, the rudimentary um, elements of our faith and what it means to be a believer. And, uh, and, and we're starting this year out with a look at the Apostles' Creed, kind of the most fundamental, the people who were closest to the source documents. Some of the people that wrote this probably knew people who knew Jesus. And so these are, like, this is as, like, the, what the very first believers kind of put together, like, this is what's important. Um, and it serves like an anchor for us, because as much as culture changes and the church changes and, and everything changes, we have this anchor way back there to make sure we don't get too far from what the original people who first sat down to do theology and kind of figure out what it means to be a believer. And we don't get too far from what they decided was important. And so we're kind of going through this Apostles' Creed together. And uh, and I think um, uh, uh, this week as we get into uh, the second half of the third article, you might say, um, this is going to be important. So more on this later, but before we dig in, I want to talk about the law. Um, and by that I mean the law of Moses. Uh, and I know the ladies have been reading through the Bible together. And so they're wrapping up Leviticus, so they should be kind of like all boned up on the on the Mosaic Law. But there's something about the law um, that creates a tension, uh, not only with today's place in the Apostles' Creed, but really with the whole creed in general. Um, and we're going to dig into that. So who can give me one of the commandments? Who, I don't care if they're like the Big Ten or just one of the weird, obscure ones like from way back. Who can give me one? Don't steal. Don't steal. Okay, what else? Don't covet. Don't covet. Good. Don't mix fabrics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no mix fabrics. Most of us are toast right now. We're toast. Uh, these pa- these jeans are stretchy. What the heck? When did jeans get stretchy? They're so like I made fun of them forever. They're so stinking comfortable. They're so stinking comfortable. I can't even make fun of them anymore. I love them. But yeah, there's no way this is one fabric. There's just no way. That's only one fabric. You can't do that with one fabric. Anyway, what's that? Yeah. What else? Give me another one. 
Honor your father and mother. Any, any more? What? You eat the sacrifice of the presence of the Lord. Right. We, we talked about that. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's in there. You know what we didn't mention? This is kind of fun. I, I, I'm glad nobody did, or you would have messed up my whole object lesson. Um, uh, and we, because we, we could probably sit here and, and, and dig way back and get into the weirdest, we get into the dietary stuff. We, you know, don't eat this, don't eat that. We get all kinds of weird stuff. <clears throat> we have, uh, we've all kind of been around this, but what we did not mention is something like this. But suppose you unintentionally fail to carry out all these commands that the Lord has given you through Moses. Clicker died. Um, and if the mistake uh, was made unintentionally and the community was unaware of it and the whole community must present a young bull for a burnt offering as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It must be offered along with the prescribed grain offerings and liquid offerings and one male goat for the sin offering. Uh, with it, the priest will purify the whole community of Israel and make them right before the Lord and they'll be forgiven. For it was unintentional sin and, and, and they corrected it with their offerings to the Lord, a special gift in the sin offering. The whole community of Israel will be forgiven, including the foreigners living among you and all the people who are involved in the sin. And if one individual commits an unintentional sin, the guilty person must bring a one-year-old female goat as a sin offering. The priest will sacrifice it and purify the guilty person before the Lord, and that person will be forgiven. The same instructions apply to both the native-born Israelites and the foreigners living among you. That's a command too. If you mess up the commands, there's a command on what you do when you mess up the commands. Think about that for a second. God freezes people from, gather, you know, from Egypt, gathers them around a mountain, asks them if they want to be in covenant relationship with Him. The people resoundingly not only say yes, but they say, we will do everything you demand of us. So God tells Moses, jot down the terms of the covenant. Uh, and, and even though the optimistic, word of faith, ADD Israelites promised to do everything God had commanded, God basically goes, now let's just assume that Things don't go as planned. Let's just assume you mess up. Let's just assume you blow it. Here's how to get back. Here's how to come back to me. Here's how to fix that. Here's how to make things right. Now, the only reason that I drug us way back here to the Old Testament this morning as we're talking about the, the Apostles' Creed was to point out that we have a blind spot, don't we? Just like the Israelites did about the law. We focus on the plan and ignore the backup plan. None of us sat here and thought about, well, the, the main purpose of the law was all these sacrifices that brought you back to God. We go straight to this is how you're supposed to live. This is what you're supposed to do. More specifically, we look at the law as a list of rules that, that we're expected to obey rather than a means by which we can fellowship and do life with God. Live this way, and if you don't, here's the way back. A, a, a goal that's so important, fellowship with God, a goal that is so important that God not only made a plan, He made a backup plan. In case plan A fails. But basically, we think of the law, we, we tend to focus on the rules and ignore the sacrifices. Which brings up an interesting tension in this morning's portion of the Creed. Article 2 of the Creed reads like this. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. We unpacked that piece two weeks ago. Last week was a family service. Two weeks ago we unpacked the first part of Article 2 of the, of the Creed. And then it goes like this. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come to judge 
than living in the dead. We, t- uh, we talked when we introduced this article that the writers of the creed chose to articulate the Godhead by two characteristics, relationship and function. Last uh, time we talked about Jesus' kind of unique um, relational essence, that He is the Son of God, but also the Son of Mary. Or more theologically, fully God and fully man. Uh, well, this week we're looking at Jesus' essential function. What did He do? We talked about how God um, was, was, was given to us relationally. He's a Father and everything that that word encompasses. But he's also creator. That's his function. His relationship is father. His, his function is creator. Well, Jesus is not, is not creator. That's not his function. His function is savior. And the focus of this point of the creed is very important, even if we might find it a little uncomfortable when we zoom in. What's missing in article two of the creed, if you look at that? Where's the big hole? Anybody see it? From what we might think? Seeing this, what's that? Sort of, why he died, but what's really missing, go to the next slide, is his life. He like jumped straight from his birth to his death. Where's, where, where's, the, where's the WWJD? Where's the what would Jesus do? Where's the, where's the example that Jesus set? What about everything else the Gospel writers told us about the miracles and the sermons and the parables? Why does the creed focus almost entirely on Jesus' birth and then jump to His death, resurrection, imminent return? And I am super excited to unpack this this morning. But I have to confess, these are deep waters um, and we're barely going to kind of stick our toes into this end of the pool. So um, this isn't going to be able to come with the mountain of cool biblical evidence that it could um, because we don't have time for that. But... Uh, but it's still going to be fun to unpack a little bit. And here's the tension. The Apostles' Creed looks at the life of Jesus almost exactly opposite of the way we looked at the Mosaic Law. Let's unpack that for a second. The law represents God's will for His people. So He wanted them to live and function and take care of themselves and take care of each other this way. And this is how they, He wanted them to relate to Him. And it also includes a system of atonement and forgiveness and redemption and restoration and, and all of that is in written form. Words. The Word, you might say. And His people didn't get it. They messed it up from day one. They, they, they butchered it. Not only did they break His laws, but they offered their restoring sacrifices to other gods. You couldn't get it more wrong than that. They completely missed it. And God said, telling them didn't seem to work. So I'll do what? I'll show them. And Jesus came. And He embodied everything that God had said in writing to Moses. And at that point, something powerful and poignant happens. Who knows what a curve buster is? Anybody get graded on a curve ever? Yeah, everybody pretty much knows what a curve buster is. A curve is a pretty brilliant grading system based on the premise that any teacher should be able to write a test too hard for his students to pass. Like it's, it's, it's based on the premise that you hope the teacher knows more than the students and can write an impossibly hard test. That can happen. So hopefully the teacher, since they know more than the teacher, uh, the students can write this test. So the curve basically grades the teacher. It says that if the entire class fails, then whoever got the best failing grade is kind of the measure and then everybody else is graded against it. It's kind of how a grade works. That way a teacher can't just hammer the students with a, with a ridiculous 
test. And so the curve buster is that one jerk of a kid who comes in and gets a, an A on a test that everybody else fails and busts the curve. Now, now everybody's graded against that A. That's what a curve buster is. My, my second son, who's now in his PhD program, was always the curve buster. Everybody hated him. But, um, but when Jesus um, stepped onto the scene, 100% of, of humanity had failed living God's way, had failed the test. 100% of humanity had sinned. There was no curve buster. How on earth could God hold us responsible for a standard that no one, no one could live up to? Then Jesus did. The Father had told us how to live, written the test, you might say, in written form, black letters, white page, and logos, and 100% failed. So God sent that logos in a different form, a flesh. An example, a demonstration, you might say. And that student aced the test. The perfect life of Jesus didn't save you. It damned you. I don't think God could have justly condemned His entire class if He would written a test too hard for us to pass. But when Jesus passed the test, we were immediately left without excuse. And therefore condemned. There's a couple pretty good verses about this. It says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus came to pass the test. To bust the curve. To prove it could be done. To live the way the law commanded us to live. And the other gets even deeper and more theological. It says, God did this to demonstrate His righteousness, for He Himself is fair and just. And... He makes sinners right in His sight when they believe in Jesus. In short, the kind of short, shallow explanation of this is that Jesus' life proved that God was fair and just. That the standard was fair and just. Which quite honestly is not good for us. Not good for us at all. But luckily, that's not all Jesus did. Jesus also died to pay the price for our sins. Rose to defeat death and hell. Which is unbelievably good for us. So God is both proven just and He's the one who justifies us. And here's the important thing to remember when we bring this to the creed. Jesus' perfect life is a living representation of the law. It's the law in flesh. It's what it looks like to actually obey the law. So for us to set our focus and our attention and our theology on Jesus' life, even, as, even just as a great example to follow, is no different than the Jews putting all their focus and attention and theology on never breaking the law. It's, it's great, but we can't do it. I believe the writers of the Creed saw that. They recognized that following Jesus' example is a great thing. WWJD is a great thing. Just, just, just living according to the Old Testament rules is a great thing. Obeying God's Word in any capacity is a great thing. But it's not what saves us. We failed that test a long time ago. And we continue to fail it every day. What saves us is the part of the law that we tend to overlook. Sacrifices. What saves us is what Jesus did for us after His perfect life. It says He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. 
descended to the dead. On the third day, He rose again, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Just like in the Old Testament when God laid out the rules and and then... Uh, and then laid out a way back to him if you broke the rules. Jesus came to, to the end of his life, having never broken a rule, having no reason to offer sacrifices to atone for his own sin. Offered himself up as an atoning payment for our sin to buy us back to the Father. And here's the challenging part. We've established pretty thoroughly that the creed isn't asking us to merely agree with facts in an outline. The creed is asking us to depend on those, to rely on those, to get into the wheelbarrow as we talked about last week. But as easy as that may sound, it, it can be tricky applying this to this part of the creed because if the creed is right, if believers who likely uh, knew some of the people who knew Jesus were right when they wrote this, if those people were right, then what does it mean to depend on the fact that not only uh, was Jesus a great example um, for us, but that example actually condemned us. And what saved us was His suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension. What does it believe to put everything in that wheelbarrow and go out over the drop? Because here's the deal. There are times we love this reality, Right? When we first come to Jesus and get saved, we love His grace at that point. We love it. It's amazing. Great news on that day. When we blow it and really mess up, we love God's grace when we mess up. I can't tell you how often I'm like, whew, thank God for His grace. What about the other times? What about the times when when we're working pretty hard and we're doing pretty good? What about the times when we, we really aren't doing anything that bad? When we take an honest look at our life, and we're like, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. Especially compared to those people. Right? Or worse yet, what, what, what happens when we're confronted with a real sinner? You know what I mean, a real sinner. I mean, I know Jesus saves sinners, but, but surely you've got to put in a little effort, right? Surely you've got to do something. I mean, I believe you know, there's only the work of the cross that saved me and, and the work of the tomb and the right hand of the Father. I believe that up here. But what does it mean to credo that reality? To, to have full confidence in that truth? Because this is the absolute heart of the Gospel. Because forgiveness is on offer. Yes, I don't care what you've done. I don't care how little you know the Bible. I don't care what you struggle with restoration, atonement, redemption, salvation. Pick your word. But that's basically what's on the table here. And there's absolutely nothing we can do to earn it or pay for it or deserve it. No matter how you live, what your worldview is, how committed you are to the Bible, how many good deeds you do, there's literally nothing you can do to earn that. All you can do is believe, rely on, depend on, have complete trust that Jesus paid the price for your undeserved salvation. And if you get that, if you truly grasp those two essential truths, that you're unworthy, no matter what you do, you are completely and utterly unworthy, and that you are loved, completely, utterly accepted and saved because of what Jesus did as outlined in the Creed. If you believe those two things, then you're saved. That's what it means. But here's the deal. That same offer is on the table for other people. 
And that's when it gets hard. And by other people, I mean those people who still struggle with stuff you don't struggle with. I mean those, those people who just hit your every last nerve. Like those people. Yeah, they can be saved by the cross of Jesus Christ too. This is important because I personally believe that there are only two things that can really mess up the Gospel. Two things that can mess up the way we talk about and communicate the Gospel. This is, and this is heavily debated, so this is my opinion, but you do not have to agree with me to be part of us here. But, but I think number one, the number one way we can mess up the, the, the Gospel is by limiting the reach of the Gospel. When you say, I know Jesus saves undeserving sinners by His free grace, but... This is the most dangerous but in the Christian life. Be real careful what you put after that but. I mean, I know He saves by His grace, but... That's a scary but. It seems like we have to do something, right? We have to put forth at least some effort. I mean, you can't just go around ignoring all the rules and God will be okay with it. We all instinctively know this. But as soon as you try to articulate exactly where that line is, you start saying, the grace of God is awesome and all, but you really can't be saved if if you still do this and that. Then what, what, what keeps someone else from saying that same thing about you? What keeps God from saying that same thing about you? About your sin? And pretty soon it's no longer grace. We're not even working with grace anymore. Now we've got a new measuring stick for, for when you're in or when you're out. So you can mess up the Gospel by limiting the reach of the Gospel. The second way you can mess up the Gospel is by limiting the reach of sin. The second you say, because God's grace covers sin, sin is no longer a big deal. The second you believe that living the way God tells us in His Word to live is no longer important because God just has grace anyway, the second you minimize sin, grace disappears and it's meaningless. Metaphysically speaking, grace is ontological. If you want your big you know, philosophy word for the day. Which means it only exists in relationship to something else. In more, in more everyday language, grace is defined as undeserved favor, which means it can only exist if it's undeserved. Why is this such a big deal? Why break out the big words like metaphysical and ontological? Because the flip side of limiting the reach of grace in order to say, well, that person can't be saved if they act like that, the flip side of that statement is a saved person looks like me. That's really what you're saying. When you're saying you can't be like that and still be saved, you're basically going, because this is what it means to be saved. This is what a saved person looks like. And that is a dangerous, dangerous statement. And although none of us would ever say that with our mouths, we know how to talk the language. You're basically saying living the way that you live is what makes you worthy of the grace of God. Those people aren't. This is. And the second you're worthy, it's not grace. Grace is only available if you're unworthy. Let's give an example. Murder, the big dog, right? The one that we, the, the big one. Can you still be a Christian and murder? Yeah. 
Most of us would say no. If you just go around murdering, you're probably not saved. What about worshiping another god? Can you be a Christian and do that? Seems like that would be tough. Right? How do you worship Jesus and worship other gods too? That seems weird. What about telling a lie? Honey, do these jeans make me look fat? Guys. What about getting behind at work and, and deciding to use Sunday to catch up? Blow off church and family for just one week. Get caught up. What about watching a, a Chiefs game over a friend's house on his 85-inch TV and really, really wanting that TV? Can you be a Christian and do those things? All those, from murder to telling your wife she looks good in those jeans, are on the exact same short list. I'm not picking weird, obscure sins from the Jewish code. Those are all in the top ten. And still, we have a tendency to say, sure, but lying's not as bad as murder. Don't we? Where do you get that? Because lying is number nine and murder is number six. Dishonoring mom and dad is number five. Anybody done that? Anybody in that camp? Breaking the Sabbath is number four. Ever blown, anybody ever blown off a Sunday? Not kidding, God. Yeah. Are we really ready to start treating Sabbath breakers the same as murderers? Because actually that's exactly what I'm suggesting. See, the problem is not that we're too lenient on murderers. The problem is that we're too lenient on ourselves. Murderers are condemned to hell, yes. And so are you. So am I. Because we're not comparing ourselves to murderers, are we? Our standard, remember, is the law. Yeah, in written form, it's, it's easy to kind of confuse it and twist it and grab the ones we like and not grab the other ones and, and minimize some. We can de- debate about those all day long. Which is exactly why God sent an example of what the law looks like when it's actually lived out. And that's why Jesus spent half his time going, you've, you've heard it said, but I say, like he's like, man, you guys really messed up your interpretation of all that written stuff. This is what it looks like. This is how you live it out. This is how you love people the way the law says love people. This is how you do things the way the law says to do them. This is what, the, what was important. We're not supposed to compare ourselves to murderers and idol worshipers. We're supposed to compare ourselves to Jesus. The example of the law. The second we start to to feel like we are any more deserving of God's grace than a murderer, we've lost it. Only when you allow God's Word to call you out, name your sin, absolutely nail you to the cross. I'm talking right where you're standing, not like where you were when you were a wild teenager. Right where you're standing today. Only when you allow your sin, however small you might think it is, however great you are compared to those people. When you allow the Bible to be true and for that sin, your sin, to make you worthy to suffer under Pontius Pilate, be crucified, die, be buried, and to descend to the dead. Only when you, when you stop limiting the reach of your sin can you truly understand the reach of grace. Any talk about sin that leaves a single person in the room 
leaving feeling pretty good about themselves is too small of an understanding of sin. It's limiting the reach of sin. Any talk about sin, an honest talk about sin, a biblical talk about sin, should leave every single one of us right where the creed wanted us. I credo, I rely on, depend on, have confidence in the saving work of Jesus, the suffering, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and reign of Jesus. I've got nothing else. I have to depend on that. I have to rely on that. Because I know I cannot be saved without it. We've been talking through this entire series about the difference between the belief that happens in our heads up here like believing that Lincoln was the 16th president. It's pretty easy to believe. And what happens in our guts. More like that trust fall Eve did last week. That was so cool. I can't believe she did that. She's a chicken by, by just by nature. She doesn't try crazy things. And man, she just went for it. That was awesome. And this part of the creed is where that belief, that trust fall, that that I put everything on this, really matters. Because you can believe that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. You don't even have to read your Bible for that. There's plenty of other historical event, uh, accounts of it. There's a lot of history. You can believe that He was crucified, died, and was buried. You can even believe He rose from the dead. I mean, it's completely logical considering the, the, the dramatic change in his disciples from cowards to people who were willing to die for their faith. They had to have seen something to change that dramatically. It seems like seeing Jesus raised would do it. Heck, Satan totally believes Jesus rose from the dead. He saw it. Academic belief doesn't change anything. But when you get what Paul got, that same Paul who quit his job, committed his entire life to spreading the gospel. That same Paul who traveled and endured rejection and imprisonment and beatings and going hungry and getting stoned by a bunch of people one time. Countless sleepless nights praying and on and on and on. In fact, remember how we talked about how our tendency is to compare ourselves to, to people who are way worse than us rather than comparing ourselves to Jesus? Let's say we step down a notch. Okay, let, let's just say Jesus is out of reach. None of us could do that. Maybe, maybe, maybe it makes sense to compare ourselves to Paul. He's just a guy. He's just a normal dude. Maybe we should compare ourselves to Paul. How does it look if you compare yourself to Paul? When was the last time you were persecuted for your faith? I'm talking 39 lashes on your back with a whip type persecution. Not like the people at work made fun of me. No, that's not persecution. Like, beat me with a whip persecuted. When was the last time any of us endured that? When was the last time you were shipwrecked and chained in a dungeon went totally hungry for Jesus? Well, let's say we had. Let's say we, we could all go with Paul. Like, I'm online with Paul. Me and Paul been through all the same stuff. I am that committed. I am that in. I am that deep. I'm that righteous and worthy. Want to know what that would look like to God? Assuming you were as good as Paul? This is a trustworthy saying and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners and I was the worst. Back when I was unsaved, I was awful. Before Jesus got a hold of my life, I was terrible. That's not what Paul says. He doesn't say I was the worst. Jesus came to save sinners and I was the worst sinner. No. This is late in his life when he's a rock star and he's paid about every price you could pay to serve Jesus and 
He was as committed as you could get. He did not feel, as he got older, like he was getting closer and closer and closer to being worthy of the grace of God. The more he got closer to Jesus, the more he realized every single day following Jesus how much he credoed, relied on, depended on, completely trusted in Jesus' work on his behalf. I am the worst. Only with that revelation do you realize that the grace of God is for you. How do we respond to this? Isn't it weird that there's nothing about lifestyle in the Apostles' Creed? The Nicene Creed either. Really, any of the creeds. As much energy as we put into telling people how they ought to live and how they ought not to live and as much debate goes into whether this is a sin or that's a sin or what is and what is not a sin, as much energy as we put into judging, the writers of the creed didn't talk about any of that. The fact is, at least the way I see it, either we are saved purely by the grace of God or we're not saved. I don't know how else to put it. Because if Paul was the chief of all sinners. I don't even want to know where I rank. And the two things that can really get in the way of that grace, in my opinion, is us for us to believe that the grace of God is not big enough to include that person. Or to allow yourself to believe that the things the Bible calls sin aren't really sin, simply because I like doing them. Or, or even that I feel like I have to do them. Sometimes we feel like we have to do them. We run into something and it's like, well, what else am I supposed to do? I, I, have, to, I have to live. I have to... Then you look at Paul's life. You look at Jesus' life. You're like, do you really? Do you really? The truth is, you are worse than you ever thought. You are more sinful than you ever dreamed. You're more wicked than you even know. But because of the work of Jesus... Outlined in the Apostles' Creed, you are more loved than you could have ever hoped for. You are more accepted than you could ever dare imagine. You are more beloved by the only being in the universe that matters than you will ever know. And that's the Gospel. And the second you start saying, I'm really not that bad, I'm really pretty good, I'm really not, you know, it goes away. There's no grace if there's no sin. And the second you go, you know, that person over there, you know, is too far gone. That's not grace. If I were to ask you if, if you're saved or, or going to heaven or a Christian or a Jesus follower, pick your word, and you said yes, and I asked how you know, the only right answer are the words on that screen. Not what you do or don't do. Not how good you are. Not what you've given up. Those things are amazing. I'm not downplaying them. Like how we live matters. And it matters, you know, for the, for the spread of the gospel. It matters for our own lives. I mean, it's good for us to live the way God said. I'm, but it does not get you to God's presence. Going all in to, to believe, rely on, depend on, trust in the words on the screen is what saves us. So the way that I would love to respond to this message today is this, as we gather around the table this morning. Whether or not you've ever given your life fully to Jesus, I invite you this morning, even while we're standing in line, to look at these words and believe.
discografía. 